Volume 1, Book 4, Chapters 16 through 24 of The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Conybeare. Volume 1, Book 4. Chapter 16. The rest of the company also besought him to tell them all about it, and as they were in a mood to listen to him, he said, Well, it was not by digging a ditch like Odysseus, nor by tempting souls with the blood of sheep, that I obtained a conversation with Achilles. But I offered up the prayer which the Indians say they use in approaching their heroes. O oh, Achilles, I said, most of mankind declare that you are dead, but I cannot agree with them, nor can Pythagoras, my spiritual ancestor. If then we hold the truth, show to us your own form, for you would profit not a little by showing yourself to my eyes, if you should be able to use them to attest your existence. Thereupon a slight earthquake shook the neighborhood of the barrow, and a youth issued forth five cubits high, wearing a cloak of Thessalian fashion, but in appearance he was by no means the braggart figure which some imagine Achilles to have been. Though he was stern to look upon, he had never lost his bright look, and it seems to me that his beauty has never received its meed of praise, even though Homer dwelt at length upon it, for it was really beyond the power of words, and it is easier for the singer to ruin his fame in this respect than to praise him as he deserved. At first sight, he was of the size which I have mentioned, but he grew bigger, till he was twice as large and even more than that. At any rate, he appeared to me to be twelve cubits high, just at that moment when he reached his complete stature, and his beauty grew apace with his length. He told me then that he had never at any time shorn off his hair, but preserved it inviolate for the river Spiricius, for this was the first river he had consulted. But on his cheeks you saw the first down. And he addressed me and said, I am pleased to have met you, since I have long wanted a man like yourself. For the Thessalians, for a long time past, have failed to present their offerings at my tomb, and I do not yet wish to show my wrath against them. For if I did so, they would perish more thoroughly than ever the Hellens did on this spot. Accordingly, I resort to gentle advice, and would warn them not to violate ancient custom, nor to prove themselves worse men than the Trojans here, who, though they were robbed of so many of their heroes by myself, yet sacrifice publicly to me, and also give me the tithes of their fruits in season, and olive branch in hand, ask for a truce from my hostility. But this I will not grant, for the perjuries which they committed against me will not suffer Ilium ever to resume its pristine beauty, nor to regain the prosperity which yet has favored many a city that was destroyed of old. 
Nay, if they rebuild it, things shall go as hard with them as if their city had been captured only yesterday. In order then to save me from bringing the Thessalian polity to the same condition, you must go as my envoy to their council in behalf of the object I have mentioned. I will be your envoy, I replied, for the object of my embassy were to save them from ruin. But, O Achilles, I would ask something of you. I understand, said he, for it is plain you are going to ask about the Trojan War. So, ask me five questions about whatever you like, and that the fates approve of. I accordingly asked him firstly, if he had obtained burial in accordance with the story of the poets. I lie here, he answered, as was most delightful to myself and Patroclus, for you know we met in mere youth, and a single golden jar holds the remains of both of us, as if we were one. But as for the dirges of the muses, and of the nereids, which they say are sung over me, the muses, I may tell you, never once came here at all, though the nereids still resort to the spot. Next I asked him if Polyxena was really slaughtered over his tomb, and he replied that this was true, but that she was slain not by the Achaeans, but that she came of her own free will to the sepulchre, and that so high was the value she set on her own passion for him and his for her, that she threw herself upon a drawn sword. The third question I asked was this. Did Helen, O Achilles, really come to Troy, or was it Homer that was pleased to make up the story? For a long time, he replied, we were deceived and tricked into sending envoys to the Trojans, and fighting battles in her behalf, in the belief that she was in Ilium, whereas she really was living in Egypt and in the house of Proteus, whither she had been snatched away by Paris. But when we became convinced thereof, we continued to fight to win Troy itself, so as not to disgrace ourselves by retreat. The fourth question which I ventured upon was this. I wonder, I said, whether Greece has ever produced at any one time so many and such distinguished heroes as Homer says were gathered against Troy. But Achilles answered, Why even the barbarians did not fall short of us, so abundantly then did excellence flourish all over the earth. And my fifth question was this, Why was it that Homer knew nothing about Palamedes, or if he knew him then kept him out of your story? If Palamedes, he answered, never came to Troy, then Troy never existed either. But since this wisest and most warlike hero fell in obedience to Odysseus's whim, Homer does not introduce him into his poems, lest he should have to record the shame of Odysseus in his song. And withal, Achilles raised a wail over him as over one who was the greatest and most beautiful of men, the youngest and also the most warlike, one who in sobriety surpassed all others and had often foregathered with the muses. 
But you, he added, O Apollonius, since sages have a tender regard for one another, you must care for his tomb and restore the image of Palamedes that has been so contemptuously cast aside. And it lies in Aeolis, close to Methymna in Lesbos. With these words, and with the closing remarks concerning the youth from Paros, Achilles vanished with a flash of summer lightning, for indeed the cocks were already beginning their chant. Chapter 17 So much for the conversation on board. But having sailed into the Piraeus at the season of the mysteries, when the Athenians keep the most crowded of Hellenic festivals, he went post-haste up from the ship into the city, but as he went forward, he fell in with quite a number of students of philosophy on their way down to Phalerum. Some of them were stripped and underwent the heat, for in autumn the sun is hot upon the Athenians, and others were studying books, and some were rehearsing their speeches, and others were disputing. But no one passed him by, for they all guessed that it was Apollonius, and they turned and thronged around him and welcomed him warmly. And ten youths in a body met him, and holding up their hands towards the Acropolis, they cried, By Athena yonder, we were on the point of going down to the Piraeus there to take ship to Ionia in order to visit you. And he welcomed them, and said how much he congratulated them on their study of philosophy. Chapter 18 It was then customary of the Epidurian festival, at which it is still customary for the Athenians to hold the initiation at a second sacrifice, after both proclamation and victims have been offered, and this custom was instituted in honor of Asclepius, because they still initiated him when, on one occasion, he arrived from Epidaurus too late for the mysteries. Now most people neglected the initiation and hung around Apollonius, and thought more of doing that than of being perfected in their religion before they went home. But Apollonius said that he would join them later on, and urged them to attend at once to the rites of religion, for that he himself would be initiated. But the Hierophant was not disposed to admit him to the rites, for he said that he would never initiate a wizard and charlatan, nor open the Eleusinian rite to a man who dabbled in impure rites. Thereupon Apollonius, fully equal to the occasion, said, You have not yet mentioned the chief of my offense, which is that knowing, as I do, more about the initiatory rite than you do yourself, I have nevertheless come for initiation to you, as if you were wiser than I am. The bystanders applauded these words, and deemed that he had answered with vigor and like himself, and thereupon the Hierophant, since he saw that his exclusion of Apollonius was not by any means popular with the crowd, changed his tone, and said, Be thou initiated for thou seemest to be some wise man that has come here. But Apollonius replied, I will be initiated at another time, and it is so-and-so, mentioning a name, who will initiate me. Herein he showed his gift of prevision, for he glanced at the hierophant who succeeded the one he addressed, 
and presided over the temple four years later. Chapter 19 Many were the discourses which, according to Damis, the sage delivered at Athens, though he did not write down all of them, but only the more important ones in which he handled great subjects. He took then for the topic of his first discourse the matter of rites and ceremonies, and this because he saw that the Athenians were much addicted to sacrifices, and in it he explained how a religious man could best adapt his sacrifice, his libation, or prayers to any particular divinity, and that what hours of day and night he ought to offer them. And it is possible to obtain a book of Apollonius, in which he gives instructions on these points in his own words, but at Athens he discussed these topics with a view to improving his own wisdom and that of others in the first place, and in the second of convicting the hierophant of blasphemy and ignorance in the remarks he had made. For who could continue to regard as one impure in his religion a man who taught philosophically how the worship of the gods is to be conducted? Chapter 20 Now while he was discussing the question of libations, there chanced to be present in his audience a young dandy who bore so evil a reputation for licentiousness that his conduct had once been the subject of coarse street-corner songs. His home was Corsira, and he traced his pedigree to Alcinus the Phaeacian, who entertained Odysseus. Apollonius was then talking about libations, and was urging them not to drink out of a particular cup, but to reserve it for the gods, without ever touching it or drinking out of it. But when he also urged them to have handles on the cup, and to pour the libation over the handle, because that is the part of the cup at which men are least likely to drink, the youth burst out into loud and coarse laughter, and quite drowned his voice. Then Apollonius looked up at him and said, It is not yourself that perpetuates this insult, but the demon who drives you on without you knowing it. And in fact the youth was, without knowing it, possessed by a devil, for he would laugh at things that no one else laughed at, and then he would fall to weeping for no reason at all, and he would talk and sing to himself. Now most people thought that it was the boisterous humor of youth which led him into such excess, but he was really the mouthpiece of a devil, though it only seemed a drunken frolic in which on that occasion he was indulging. Now when Apollonius gazed on him, the ghost in him began to utter cries of fear and rage, such as one hears from people who are being branded or racked. And the ghost swore that he would leave the young man alone and never take possession of any man again. But Apollonius addressed him with anger, as a master might, a shifty, rascally, and shameless slave, and so on. And he ordered him to quit the young man, and show by a visible sign that he had done so. I will throw down yonder statue, said the devil, and pointed to one of the images which was in the king's portico, for there it was that the scene took place. But when the statue began by moving gently and then fell down, it would defy anyone to describe the hubbub which arose thereat, and the way they clapped their hands with wonder, 
but the young man rubbed his eyes as if he had just woke up and he looked towards the rays of the sun and won the consideration of all who now had turned their attention to him for he no longer showed himself licentious nor did he stare madly about but he had returned to his own self as thoroughly as if he had been treated with drugs and he gave up his dainty dress and summery garments and the rest of his sybaritic way of life and he fell in love with the austerity of philosophers and donned their cloak and stripping off his old self modelled his life in future upon that of apollonius chapter twenty one and he is said to have rebuked the athenians for their conduct of the festival of dionysus which they hold at the season of the month Anthesterion. For when he saw them flocking to the theatre, he imagined that they were going to listen to solos and compositions in the way of processional and rhythmic hymns, such as are sung in comedies and tragedies. But when he heard them dancing lascivious jigs to the rondos of a flute, and in the midst of the solemn and sacred music of Orpheus, striking attitudes as the hours, or as nymphs, or as bacchants, he set himself to rebuke their proceedings, and said, Stop dancing away the reputations of the victors of Salamis, as well as of many other good men departed from this life. For if, indeed, this were a Lacedaemonian form of dance, I would say, Bravo, soldiers, for you are training yourselves for war, and I join in your dance. But, as it is a soft dance, and one of effeminate tendency, what am I to say of your national trophies? Not as monuments of shame to the Medeans or Persians, but to your own shame they will have been raised, should you degenerate so much from those who set them up. And what do you mean by your saffron robes and your purple and scarlet raiment? For surely the Arcanians never dressed themselves up in this way, nor ever the kings of Colonus rode in such garb. And why do I say this? A woman commanded a ship from Caria, and sailed against you with Xerxes. And about her there was nothing womanly, but she wore the garb and armor of a man. But you are softer than the woman of Xerxes' day, and you are dressing yourselves up to be your own despite, old and young and tender youth alike, you who of old flocked to the temple of Agraulus in order to swear to die in battle on behalf of the fatherland. And now it seems that the same people are ready to swear to become bacchants and don the threesus in behalf of their country. And no one bears a helmet, but disguised as female harlequins, to use the phrase of Euripides, they shine in shame alone. Nay more, I hear that you turn yourselves into winds, and wave your skirts, and pretend that you are ships bellying their sails aloft. But surely you might at least have some respect for the winds that were your allies and once blew mightily to protect you, instead of turning Boreas, who was your patron, and who of all the winds is the most masculine, into a woman. For Boreas would never have become the lover of Orethia, if he had seen her executing, like you, a skirt dance. Chapter 22 He also corrected the following abuse at Athens. The Athenians ran in crowds to the theatre beneath the Acropolis to witness human slaughter, 
and the passion for such sports was stronger there than it is in Corinth today. For they would buy, for large sums, adulterers and fornicators, and burglars and cutpurses and kidnappers, and such like rabble, and then they took them and armed them and set them to fight with one another. Apollonius then attacked these practices, and when the Athenians invited him to attend their assembly, he refused to enter a place so impure and reeking with gore. And this he said in an epistle to them. He said that he was surprised that the goddess had not already quitted the Acropolis when you shed such blood under her eyes. For I suspect that presently, when you are conducting the Pan-Athenaic procession, you will no longer be content with bulls, but will be sacrificing hecatombs of men to the goddess. And thou, O Dionysus, dost thou after such bloodshed frequent their theatre? And do the wise among the Athenians pour libations to thee there? Nay, do thou depart, O Dionysus, holier and purer is thy Scytheron. Such were the more serious of the subjects which I have found he treated of at that time in Athens in his philosophic discourses. Chapter 23 and he also went as envoy to the Thessalians in behalf of Achilles, at the time of the conferences held in Pylea, at which the Thessalians transact the Amphictyonic business. And they were so frightened that they passed a resolution for the resumption of the ceremonies at the tomb. As for the monument of Leonidas the Spartan, he almost surrounded it with a shrine, out of admiration for the hero, and as he was coming to the mound where the Lacedaemonians are said to have been overwhelmed by the bolts which the enemy rained upon them, he heard his companions discussing with one another which was the loftiest hill in Hellas, this topic being suggested, it seems, by the sight of the mountain of Oita, which rose before their eyes. So ascending the mound, he said, I consider this the loftiest spot of all, for those who fell here in defense of freedom raised it to a level with Oita, and carried it to a height surpassing many mountains like Olympus. It is these men that I admire, and beyond any of them Magistias and Arcanian, for he knew the death that they were about to die, and deliberately made up his mind to share in it with these heroes, fearing not so much death as the prospect that he should miss death in such company. Chapter 24 And he also visited all the Greek shrines, namely that of Dodona, and the Pythian temple, and the one at Abai. And he betook himself to those of Ampharius and of Trophinius, and he went up to the shrine of the Muses on Mount Helicon. And when he visited these temples, and corrected the rites, the priests went in his company, and the votaries followed in his steps and goblets were set up flowing with rational discourse, and the thirsty quaffed their wine. And as the Olympic games were coming on, and the people of Elis invited him to take part in the contest, he answered, You seem to me to tarnish the glory of the Olympic games. If you need to send special invitations to those who intend to visit you from this very land, and he was at the Isthmus when the sea was roaring around Lycaeum, and hearing it, he said, This neck of land shall be cut through, or rather it shall not be cut. 
and herein he uttered a prediction of the cutting of the isthmus which was attempted soon afterwards when nero in the seventh year of his reign projected it for the latter left his imperial palace and came to hellas with the intention of submitting himself to the herald's commands in the olympic and pythian festivals and he also won the prize at the isthmus his victories being won at the contest of singing to the harp and in that of the heralds and he also won the prize for tragedians at olympia it is said that he then formed the novel project of cutting through the isthmus in order to make it possible for ships to sail right round and by it and to unite the aegean with the adriatic sea so instead of every ship having to go round cape malia most by passing through the canal so cut could abridge an otherwise circuitous voyage but mark the upshot of the oracle delivered by apollonius they began to dig the canal at lycaeum but they had not advanced more than about four stadia of continuous excavation when nero stopped the work of cutting it some say because egyptian men of science explained him the nature of the seas and declared that the sea above lycaeum would flood and obliterate the island of aegina and others because he apprehended a revolution in the empire such then was the meaning of apollonius's prediction that the isthmus would be cut through and would not be cut through end of volume one book four chapters sixteen through twenty four